Joining me today from the United Kingdom, filmmaker Miss Sally Potter, next on the Dusty Wright Show at CultureCatch.com. Today's show is brought to you by our friends at Podkive. For all of your web hosting needs, visit podkive.com. Joining us today on the Dusty Wright Show, very honored to have the UK indie filmmaker and director and Renaissance woman, Miss Sally Potter. Sally, welcome. Thank you. Sally, what did you dream last night? I think it was a dream-free sleep. Oh, you know what? I dreamt that I was awake when, in fact, I was asleep. Because I woke up at 5 a.m., looked at the clock, jet-lagged, useless. So at 5 a.m., right, that's it, forget it. And then thought I was awake until 7, but in fact woke up to look at the clock at 7. And was it in color or black and white? Well, I think it was even with lacking in visuals, so I would call it sort of black screen or white screen effect. It was all muted. The colors were muted. The, the colors yeah. were not there. Yeah. Do you typically dream in color? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, Having said that, I think that what black and white offers is a space for imaginative color, a different kind of <clears throat> tonal range that allows you to sort of project color into the spaces rather than have it given to you. One of the limitations I've always found, in fact, with, with color on film stock, there's something too flat and pseudo-real in a way that black and white film captures something of the experience of light and shadow. Or used to, and I think that's now changed with digital because I think there's something about the use of, of, of color, digital color, that more resembles the way somehow the, the inner mind constructs color. And it's this hyper sense of reality, digital, HD, particularly HD, where well, it's so super saturated. Well, that's more complicated. Right. I think HD can get high, hyper real in the sense that it can be clinically precise, that does not resemble how the eye actually reads another individual or a situation. It, it's more like looking at a slab of meat under a microscope, you know, the pores of the skin and so on, that we don't really feel and see when we look. So um, I tend to be more interested in how a camera can in some way resemble or reproduce the subjective experience of seeing, looking and hearing actually, which is, which is colored in many other ways, less precise perhaps technically, more precise emotionally. And that takes a lot of, of course, technical and work, work with the artifice of the lens and so on to, to recreate that feeling, I think. Now, uh, your latest movie, Rage, different way of shooting film. Did, you wrote a, a conventional script for this movie, correct? In the beginning, yeah. In the beginning. In, 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 in ancient, the ancient past, about 10 years ago. Oh, it started ancient 10 years ago? Ancient by digital standards. Ah, yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in the pre-digital period, I wrote it and then and thought, mm, this isn't really going to work. This isn't the right way of doing this. And so I put it in the ubiquitous drawer, you know, for, for future reference. And then following having had, done a blog on a website and it explored both, you know, teeny-weeny cameras making, making little filmettes on my cell phone to post on my blog and things like that, that helped me to, to find another way in, you should, I might say, to the subject matter and, uh, and started all, all over again from scratch. And that's how I decided to shoot it the way I did, as if through the eyes of a blogger with a cell phone against a green screen. 
very, very imaginative. I mean, obviously the critics just love the, this kind of breakthrough. And you know, we've kind of seen it in some rock videos. Uh, Sinead O'Connor did it years ago with Nothing Compares to You. And mm. we've seen it a couple of other times. Well, how frightening was it for your actors? Oh, absolutely terrifying because they knew that there was nowhere to hide. They were going to be completely exposed. There were going to be no locations, no sets, no props, no cutaways, no long shots. It was all going to be about a kind of, if you like, a sort of pure performance. For all of us, a kind of naked cinema, not because of showing the flesh, but because of, paradoxically for the digital age, uh, no techno wizardry, just a kind of techno kindness. <laughs> um, which, yeah, so scary, even for the really biggest stars, a, a very, very scary and challenging situation, but I tried to create a kind of a sort of safety, a risk-taking arena of safety. And explain to the audience, we spoke off camera about this, how did you create that, that safety net for them, that, to, that uh, so they could trust you and trust the process? Well, the real trust is established through personal relationship one-on-one. -on -one. It's not really about what equipment you have or what setting you have. Uh, an actor has to feel that they are in hands that will protect them and sincerely protect mm. them, not just pretend to. And I think once you've established that and established that risks are okay, making mistakes are not only fine, but mu you, know, you must in order to go into new areas and so on. Technically, however, the, the situation was very specific and not one that I'd ever been you know, used before or even dreamt of using, really, in colour or black or white or anything else. Um, it was to shoot uh, operating myself with a green screen, one-on-one -on -one with each actor, and handheld using, in fact, in this instance, after many tests, a Panasonic HD X200 mid-range um, you know, not a massive thing, a thing about this size, which would allow me to imitate the movement in the body that you have if you're shooting with a cell phone. But the lenses on cell phones are not, for me anyway, sufficiently precise. Uh, they, they wouldn't sustain, you know, an hour and a half of looking at faces in that way. They will, I'm sure, in about a year or two, probably, <laughs> but not right now. Um, anyway, a, a camera of this kind of size can mimic the feeling of movement and the way that people tend to use their cell phones, which is fairly close, a kind of arm's length thing that they can also reverse to look at themselves. So you get a kind of, a kind of length and a kind of way that has nothing to do with the, what now feel to me very old ways of having you know, a camera that's vertical where you look at the axis, You've got this vertical relationship to the face. You know, we don't do that. We look at people like this. You know, your face now is slightly tilted. Mm. So in your inner eye, you're framing me slightly differently mm. than the camera that is behind you, which is straight. Not that one, but this one. And um, so there we were, green screen, two lights bounced off a reflector, no, no direct light, um, sheets on the floor, very kind of improvised feeling to it in which it was then possible to concentrate exclusively on the performance, on the actor, and on a kind of subjective feeling relationship to their face, depending what they were saying and delivering and how they were doing that. So an absolutely different approach to camera work than I've um, worked with before. Very much less formal. And then in post-production, to, to, to rework things, uh, 
even the quality of the light or the skin tone, and in particular, what was in the background, which in this case, I eventually settled on absolutely flat, digital, pure color. Color that was taken digitally from some detail in the actor's face, mm. eye color, tiny little part of the iris, you know, zooming right in, finding it and then blowing it up and putting it over the mat of, of what had been the green screen or something in their clothes. Um, which then also became a kind of, if you like, sort of emotional use of color behind them to, to, to bring out or emphasize or exaggerate what they were, uh, what, what the character was working with, the emotional tone, the emotional color, if you like, of the character. So again, something I haven't really done before, and which you can only do now with the tools at your disposal. But any really modest tools, the, tool, the, the law, if you like, the internal law of the production was everything we do could be done by a nine-year-old boy on a laptop in his bedroom without his parents knowing. Well, my 11-year-old does this all the time. He makes his movies, yeah. and they post them on YouTube, and they go back and forth. Exactly. They have cereal. They have the whole cereal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. It's extraordinary. Yeah. The other thing I noticed, because of your background in dance and in theater, you, you touched on it. You were moving, but your actors are moving. So I'm sure, did you say, here's the safety line. Don't go beyond that just for the technical limitations? Or did you let them have a little bit more free reign? Where in a traditional mm. scene, as you said, you know, yeah. you have a fixed position, your camera guys, your, you know, your AD is saying, no, you can't go past there, here's our yeah. focal point, all of this. Yeah. Well, they were, they were sitting on a stool, so they weren't on, on the whole, there were one or two moments where there, there was more movement. But no, I did have a couple of problems with framing. If I came in too close and went too low, and suddenly the head was outside the, the green screen, you know, I was in deep shit, basically. Right. So <laughs> we did have to set a few rules, but, but you know, they weren't too restrictive. Right. Honestly. The other thing was the, the clothes selection. And again, you touched on that, which I didn't know, that you sampled colors from the clothes, the yes. makeup, the eyes, the iris, yes. everything. Yeah. Uh, and the way that that was framed with backdrops, the edges that you created was very dramatic. Yeah. Did you know that going in, or was that a happy accident? Well, I had actually uh, originally thought that I would be putting in much more complex backgrounds behind the individuals, and I shot a, t a ton of backgrounds here in New York City. And then in the cutting room, when I put them in, matted them in behind the characters, it in a way detracted from, from the rigor of the minimalism, of the simplicity, if you like, from a feeling of connectedness with the face. And I, I, so I decided to get in a sense, even more purist than I'd already set out to be, mm. and just say, look, anything that detracts from our connection with this extraordinary face in front of us goes out. Mm. That was the law of the cutting room. How do we stay connected? No, no distraction. And, um, and again, that's what, what, if you like, drove me to pure color. <laughs> And how about the acting itself? You had two days with each actor, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, how many takes would you do? As in many a given as were scene? needed, because the although two days isn't very much, actually, if all you're concentrating on is the actor, it suddenly begins to seem like a lot. But you know, time, as you know, changes during a shoot. An hour can seem like a week or a month or a year, and, and if, if you if you are fully in the moment and using it right, um, but. No, to, it helps to relax people too, to say, as I did to each actor at the beginning, look, you know, we have time. If we need to do 20 takes or even 30 takes to find, to find the character, to find where we are, to find the rhythm, 
we will do that. If, if we move on and to another scene and then feel that actually we didn't quite get it, we'll go back to the previous scene. It's okay. Mm. And that, um, I think, cr created again, uh, sort of relaxes the tension, the pressure in the atmosphere a bit. And um, so we did, we did a fair number. Did you let the actors read the entire script? And I'm wondering how that was assembled, since this is a series of monologues. Did you just have them, here's your monologue, then Jude, here's your monologue, and then Steve, here's your monologue. Was it linear? No, no, they, they got the whole script. Okay. And the script had been, you know, worked and reworked an sort of infinite number of times, it feels like, to arrive at the form. And even then, I changed it a little with each actor to, you know, to fit like it loved, to feel help it feel like nobody else ever could have played that particular mm. part, which I think is the correct approach with an, with an actor. And um, they, yeah, so they read the whole, they knew what they were in, mm -hmm. but then they didn't meet any of the other actors at all. It was one in, one out, you know. And for me, it was like going back to the beginning of the film every two days and, and following the arc of the whole story from that particular character's point of view. Again, a very sort of odd and interesting way to work, actually. Yeah, very interesting. The, uh, the actors, how do you get an actor, and I don't have enough experience as a director to not overact in a situation like that, where there's nothing to play off of except for the camera, and there's no external elements or, you know, well, not a prop or anything, you know? Well, on the whole, direction I have learned consists of doing less than you think you have to. You know, shutting up, basically, and really watching and observing respectfully and lovingly what the actor is struggling to do. And reaching for a kind of state of authenticity that you both know how to recognize. You know. um, but you, you have to be, as a director, the first and best audience that that actor will ever have. Because it's under the, the, so to speak, focused gaze that the actor can then really function and deliver. And when I mean focused gaze, I mean really. I, I try, when I'm looking at an actor, to think of nothing else. That is, that is the only person in my universe at that moment. Of course, in the back of my mind, I'm holding the whole arc of the film and how will it fit and is that too slow, will it edit and so on, you know. And then I'll give feedback on that. So I might, in the, in the instance of somebody pushing the energy out too much that we call overacting, I might say, you could maybe pull it back a bit, you know, or, you know, whatever is the appropriate remark that will work. Some people need one to be very blunt and direct like that was too big, you know. So for somebody else, that could crush them, so you have to watch very carefully. Mm. And so maybe a more gentle hint, or maybe one can find another way in, you know, like that, that actually distracts the person from going too big, like giving them a place, a physical place to focus on the lens or something, something that will keep part of their attention anchored in something else. Whatever works, and you only find out what works by just looking with that, as I said, this sort of benign, loving, respectful gaze. You know. And they begin to feel that then, the kind of the force feel. They feel surrounded by that look and held by it, which then gives the freedom to explore. 
Did you have any, in, any instances, like in music, oftentimes you'll say the first take was the best on a vocal or a guitar solo mm -hmm. or something. Did you have those moments with this? With well, first take the best? Yeah. Uh, in this film, there may have been, yeah. I can't remember offhand because I study, you know, everything in the cartoon. I mean, every single take. And, you know, you search for the treasure that somebody's given you. And sometimes the treasure can be buried in the middle of something that isn't quite so good. But um, that's fine. You know, all you need is the treasure. You don't need the other bits. Mm. And um, there may have been some first, you know, go for it, deliver it straight moments. There may well have been. But for others, you know, it was, it was that 20th take when it suddenly all happened and came together. And why not? You know, there's many ways to find it. And that, that's one as good as another. How long did it take you to edit? Mm, was it four months? Something like that. And then I think we revisited it. I did a few cuts, quite, I mean, a lot of cuts. And uh, even some adjustments after you know, post-grading and, and so on. But, the, you know, the, the, the period of, of the, the edit was, a, you know, fairly conventional length for a feature film edit, actually. And talk about music, because music is kind of important, but it isn't because it's telling its own part of the story. Mm. It's in the background, and this is the fashion world where music and these fashion shows can help sell a collection, I guess, for some sound designers. Yeah. Well, you're the first to know that I did, in fact, record an entire music soundtrack for this film and then junked it, <laughs> along with junking the um, wow. backgrounds that I'd shot and didn't use. So the whole project somehow seemed to be about stripping away and, and, and in a way, being prepared to, to, put, to junk stuff that you've put enormous energy and, and attention into and the skill of others. Um, so in the end, I decided to strip it down to the, just the music that you were hearing off that was the so-called you know real music in this live world off outside the frame of the show and some snippets but i did keep one or two moments that were actually done on guitars and so on that that sound like a real sound like sound like a siren mm. um or uh just an odd sound like some kind of something in the air conditioning or something <laughs> Uh, and um, so the whole, the whole world of sound effects is, is in effect, um, a kind of gentle score. But the score score wasn't used, just the one piece. Now you piqued my interest. You had a whole mu musical soundtrack. Mm -hmm. Did you engage like some well-known artists to record the song? I engaged the magnificent Fred Frith, guitarist oh extraordinaire, who I've worked with on four feet, five features now. Yeah. So. Um, and we, we were in absolute agreement about... <laughs> poor Fred, <laughs> to, I was going to say. No, 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 poor Fred. You know, he, he's uh, you know, absolutely on the button when it comes to what to use and what not to use and what to hear and what not to hear. And uh, I will, I think, be using this music for something else, for other things. It's not, it's not you know, wasted in any way. And indeed, the whole... Ex the whole um, making of the track wasn't wasted because it helped to clarify what do we need to hear you know not what do we want to hear but what do we need to hear to tell this story and then we did use the one piece that with with fred's multiple guitars on it which i never which, would have guessed that sally that it was fred doing that i would have thought you went somewhere else because it was yeah. but he's so gifted i mean i can do not? anything yeah you can do absolutely yeah. anything and i think we put down like two lead guitars two bass tracks 
um, on a drum machine and stuff like that. But mm. but um, you know he did as usual. We did mu a music for tango lesson as well. Yeah, we well, we did together the it, using this weird collaborative method that we have of um, created if it's what we called the connective tissue of the score of the tango lesson in between the the authentic tangos that were you know great recordings from from the past. I love that process. I love that you're loyal too to a group of you know into artistic individuals. You know they you kind of feel a kindred spirit with them and a collaborative spirit. They become your beloved team, you know, and when you and it, and it takes time to build a relationship and to, to build that kind of trust and to understand each other, and uh, you know, for somebody like Fred, for example, to go into the studio and me to say, well, you know, could you try at, doing that in A minor and, hey, how about using your funny brush thing? And he goes, okay, Sally, you know, get it out and do it, which is an amazing act of of. Trust that he can he can bring his enormously extraordinary um, improvisational skills as a musician, and in a way, hand that material over to me to to, to do as I wish. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, we I think we share a sensibility and, and and ears. Yeah, definitely. All right, it's been written that you believe in cinema's transform transformative capacity. What film transformed you early on? Remember? Oh, yeah, well, many actually. I'm sure, but was there that one defining moment as a young gal that you said, ooh? You know, I think there were really kind of an accumulation of moments mm. rather than a single moment. And, you know, when you asked the question, I had a little kind of flurry of, of thoughts that came into my mind. So I will share this flurry with you. You know, ranging from Singing in the Rain, which is so absolutely layered with meaning mm. and when I began to research into the writers and what happened and how they were blacklisted you know you kind of feel with singing in the rain this is a musical but there's something really really serious behind it too and deep and then you find out my god these are you know politically active blacklisted writers you know Christ and um, and then the kind of feeling of joy and then in a way that that, that comes through the dancing but also the um, uh, the, the history of, of the evolution of cinema that is so lovingly uh, portrayed and you know, gently satirized in a way. Mm. And then the next layer of allegory about truth and lies and, and, and uh, who's really doing what and what, what you know, and so on, um, not just in cinema but in life that is in there. So I think I felt probably as a child when I saw it, a young child, that this was more than it appeared to be. But on the top level, the surface level, the transformative experience was, was the transformation that comes through laughter, you know, mm. through sheer pleasure at looking at, well, for instance, at somebody dancing in a puddle of water, you know, with that absolutely kind of childlike sort of glee, you know. That's absolutely gorgeous. Okay, then you, then you go to something like last year in Marion Bad, you know, you know, absolutely abstract, long, black and white shots, figures in a landscape that I saw probably when I was about 13. And I remember going, <gasps> you know, while people around me were walking out bored and sort of alienated, I was entranced. Well, that's when abstract yeah. thought starts, starts to form the individual too. Well, you, at 13? Or probably before, right? 12, 11? At birth, I'd say. But, but grasping abstract concepts. Birth, birth. Think, Look really? in a baby's eyes, yeah. you know. The great, sort of the great wise meditators, you know, yeah. in the cradle, my God. 
it seems like that kind of gradually gets knocked out of us. Well, no, it, it does, I mm. believe, but I, I think there's a, it comes a point in every child's moment, uh, life where the, the innocence gets knocked out and the seriousness of life. So for some people, they always pick those moments when they had that great breakthrough with a book, a piece yeah. of music, a movie. You know, for me, it was 2001 with the abstract yeah. elements of that yeah. entire movie and the narrative, which yeah. I grasped to understand. Yeah. I didn't understand until I read the book years later. Mm. But uh, anyway, so fair enough. Uh, what was fair enough? <laughs> every, you know, abstract thought, you know? Yeah. You seem to have uh, a, uh, a critical component in your movie. There's an obsessiveness, you know, maybe that you're exploring, you know, where, you know, rage for me, there's this obsessiveness that people have with profit. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, tangle less and dance and, you know, how obsessive people become with things mm -hmm. and, you know. Or maybe we just overlook this obsessiveness that exists all around us and we just take it for granted. Is, you look kind of surprised when I said that, obsessive, obsessions. No, I'm interested. Okay. That was me looking interested. <laughs> 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 um, the obsessiveness, well, okay, you've picked up one of the themes of rage, which is the obnoxious pursuit of profit at the expense of real life human beings and how that's become well, more than acceptable. It's become, you know, desired and, and okay and people can boast about how much profit they've made. But as soon as you analyze profit, you know that somewhere along the end of the line, at the very end of the line, is having a really rough time so that you can have a bit more cash in your pocket. I mean, that is the equation, I'm afraid where profit goes, as I understand it. So um, the unthinking pursuit of profit, the false god, if you like, yeah, it's a target of, uh, in the film, in this one, one of the thematics, as is the obsession the, 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 for the, the, the lust for fame, you know, and visibility, that it permeates the culture and has become a kind of acceptable goal for a you know, child. What do you want to be when you grow up? Famous. Mm. For what? Do you want to, you know, find a cure for cancer, for example? Would you like to sort of end uh, nuclear weapons worldwide or solve climate change? And I want to be famous. Now, why? Why? You know, I've been pon trying to figure out why this obsession. Now, obviously, it's partly a feeling that unless you're famous, and on TV for your 15 Andy Warhol minutes, um, you somehow don't exist you are less than the person who is up there and visible. That's the kind of feeling. And at root, that must go centuries back to slave societies, where the justification for terrible brutality and exploitation was that some people were less than others. And this is, if you like, the kind of one of the, 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 most, re the most recent ripple of that, of that uh, dynamic. That, that's my temporary conclusion, anyway. At one of the deeper roots of this, this, this craving for celebrity. Um, what did you say next? You talked about the other... Oh, you said about the obsession for dance in the tango lesson. Well, what I discovered in, in learning to tango and going to Buenos Aires and spending night after night after night up till 7am in club after smoky well, not so smoky, club, dancing, 
was that I became physically and emotionally addicted to the chemicals that were going around in my body. You know, in, those, in, the, in the tango world, people don't drink. You know, they don't want anything that will upset the, the balance, sense of balance or anything like that. And they don't, on the whole, take drugs and stuff. They are drugged by the dance itself, by their own bodies, by what it produces. And we know about this, you know, exercise addiction to people going running or you know, dreadful, boring things like running, but, <laughs> but which I would never do. But um, I, I began to feel that, you know, and that obsessive state that you can get into. But there's also a kind of very beautiful state to an obsession like that. I kind of feel, well, if I'm going to be obsessed with anything, you know, why not obsessed with dance? <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Rather than say, cigarettes or something. I'm going to be addicted to something. So um, I think this, you know, there, there are two, two ends to that scale. So there's really negative addictive obsession that has a, the, the end of which is exploitation and degradation somehow. And there's positive obsession, which is a sort of a beautiful yearning to experience something joyful and meaningful and, mm. and lovely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, sitting here, I, I'm thinking like, Seeing your movie on a screen as opposed to seeing it as you did releasing it digitally or watching it on your laptop or, you know, mm. we have all these ways of ingesting content today. And, but yet there's nothing that's more thrilling than being in a dark movie theater on a huge 16-9 aspect ratio screen and seeing a spectacle. Are, are, are we raising youth culture today that is going to be devoid of that? Are we quickly going to eradicate that experience? No. People were afraid that photography would kill painting, but it just made painters sit up and do more and interesting things. Mm. People were afraid that you know, digital was going to kind of kill film. Not true. And not true in the way that we think. Um, and I think that, for example, putting rage out first on cell phones is not going to kill the possibility of, of watching it big. But even my film aside, I think that what... Um, I saw last night a party, people standing around their cell phones looking at the first episode of Rage. I thought, ooh, I'm, I'm here at the birth of a new way of looking. How extraordinary. Because they were standing around, it wasn't a completely solitary experience, but they were standing around and looking at, at it, perhaps in the way that people originally went and looked at miniatures, paintings. I thought, my God. The focus of the gaze that has to happen when you're looking at something small mm. and you're standing around it and you have to focus your eyes, literally focus your eyes, your retina to look and search in a way, search, disappear into a kind of, into a kind of hole, hole through this little screen. How extraordinary that is. And then people were standing around and talking about it. So it was a different kind of collective relationship to the moving image. Not a substitute for, just different. It's not an either-or situation. Now, being able to access things free in that way, you know, have it have the film in your pocket or on your laptop, something like that, is going to perhaps, I hope, make people that run cinemas think, sit up and think, oh, now we have to make going out to the movies a really more special experience. Mm. Comfortable seats, fantastic <laughs> projection. Um, you know, sharp, great sound, maybe some good food, I don't know, whatever. Yeah. You know, that because you're right, there is no substitute for the great big collective viewing experience. It's ancient. It's as ancient as the beginning of theatre. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be in the dark for the Greeks to sit in an amphitheatre to watch their, their players, you know. Right. But um, 
it's, it's a social experience. And the internet and the cell phone is an intimate experience that goes wide socially with multiple invisible others. It's still social, but you're not together physically in the room to do it. Mm. As I said, it's not either or, it's and. Right, yeah, it's a brave new world. <laughs> you're, we're in the hub of it, right? Yeah. We're in the hub of it. Where else? What's your most, uh, uh, what's your, your favorite time during the process of making a film? Well, or does, it, does it depend from project? Is it project to project a different special moment? Well, as a writer director going through the whole arc, you know, from the sitting there alone in a room mm. with, in my case, a blank sheet of paper because I write longhand, ah. um, staring into the void of nothingness, you know, before there's something there, but knowing that if I stick with it, I will eventually be sitting in a movie theater with an absolutely complicated something with a lot of others. That total arc of creation is, you know, an enormous privilege to experience, actually. Right. And what's lovely about it is precisely that it does take a very different shape at different stages along, along that journey. Right. From being, you know, the solitudinous agony <laughs> of, of sitting in a way of, of, of facing your own limits yeah. as you begin to generate the first idea and the first thought, which is always small, you know. Um, through to uh, once you've um, uh, finished the script, raised the money and, and so on, the extraordinarily busy, active and social and collaborative process of a shoot, which is like a kind of guerrilla warfare in a mm. way, where you have to do your best when most exhausted and surrounded by hundreds of others watch you make your dreadful mistakes, you know, and all that. <laughs> um, through to the collaborative Cutting room experience of working with an editor and maybe an assistant and so on, but you know, long, you know, over, over a period of months, through to this. Look, you know, I finished the film, but I'm I'm talking about it or the ripples from it with you, who I've only just met. The the the, the relationships that occur in when the film is finished, but but it's not finished in the eyes of the world. It's just coming into being in the eyes of the world. So that's a lot of variety and it's the variety itself which I think is is great because for many people in their life's work there's an extraordinary re repetitious mm. similarity you know they're doing the same thing again and again yeah great answer thanks what do you like to read you like fiction nonfiction I'm an, a really avid reader I love books I love going into bookshops, I love picking them up, I love holding them, I love this one, putting them by my cheek, you know, anything really. Um, I love reading fiction. I read, I read a, 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 an enormous amount of fiction. I also read science, particularly science that I can't understand. I find that very thrilling. <laughs> I like not understanding stuff. Um, you know, maths. Uh, I, mean, I left too. school at 16, so you're looking at an uneducated yeah. person. Um, but so my, my actual abilities, let's say, with mathematics are extremely slender. But when I read a book about the nature of zero, when the concept of zero was invented, what the implications were and what it means, you know, my heart started to beat faster. Mm. And it became part of a script, actually, the last film, yes. But, so I like to read people who are thinking in a different way and coming from a different place. Than, than my own direct experience. Right. That's very interesting. But otherwise, it's fiction. Did you like proof? The play proof? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But um, I also love Chekhov. You know. yeah. 
know. Well, it's a good thing. How about music? What do you listen to besides Fred Frith when he's not Ooh, composing? A lot. My tastes are extremely eclectic. World, really, you know, world music from Argentinian tango to Romanian um, gypsy music. I have tons and tons of CDs from the Tower of the Hajduks, Nikolai Gutza, and so on, to um, Fairuz, you know, the great Lebanese singer, to um, Cesare Avora, I mean, whoever, whatever, Billie Holiday, to Glenn Gould playing the Bach Preludes and Fugues, um, talk about skeletal, you know. Uh, um, on and on, actually. What's your favorite uh, painting? Do you have a favorite? No, I can never, I can never deal the with this favorite, favorite concept. Or, you know, the yeah. oneness concept. Yeah, you know, okay. But, but um, yeah. I appreciate where the question is coming from. Let me think. Let me reward. You have a painting you like. Get, you don't. You never tire of getting lost in. Well, the the paintings that came to mind suddenly. This would vary, okay, depending mm. on the week, the day, the sure. time, the mood, the whatever. But I suddenly thought of Frida Kahlo. Ah. When I went to Mexico City and, and visited her studio and then actually the bathroom where she painted in the bath when she was in a lot of pain, painted her, you know, her very small mm -hmm. paintings. The, the combination of, um, of representation, the recognizable representational figures and the kind of abstractions in there, the symbols and the abstractions and so on. And the fact even that her paintings were overlooked at the time but have become so now so iconic, so recognizable. The emotional charge in them, the beauty and the suffering in them too, um, they would be just one example of many. Mm. You know, but, but that's who came to mind. Great answer. Um, you must be hankering to start a new project. Have you got something that's in the works right now while you conclude this press junket or just get in the, you're just in the beginning of the press junket, I should imagine, with this movie? Sort of midway. midway. Um, well, yeah, what tends to, the rhythm I've discovered that I have, I didn't set out for it to be that way, is that when I'm in a film, and I'm still in it now, with you in it, um, I am 100% monogamous. Mm. You know? <laughs> I, it is my world. Once this is finished, I will forget it. I will have amnesia. I won't look at it again, probably, <laughs> if I possibly can avoid it. And I will be falling in love with the new. But, but I have got a couple, having said that, a couple of scripts I've been working on on and off over the years, and a new idea that kind of came. But I have a longing. Should I really be saying this? I'll say it anyway. I have a real longing to do a musical. Mm. And I don't know exactly what that would consist of or how it's possible to reinvent the musical form and drag it out of the era of nostalgia where it <laughs> seems to be stuck into something that sort of really makes sense for now, but that's what I'd love to do. Fantastic. Sally, thank you so much for being on our show. Is there anything you'd like to add? I think we've covered quite a lot I of bases, we have, haven't we? Yeah, I'm quite <laughs> pleased by this. Hope you enjoyed yourself. Thank you. Thanks. Go see Rage, everyone. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Miss Sally Potter. If you like my interviews, please leave your comments in the iTunes directory. And for all of your smart culture needs, visit culturecatch.com daily. Converge is the word.